Well, good evening. Welcome to Plainfield Bible Church, and thank you for taking time on a Friday night. I know it's probably been a long week, but a good way to end the week is in worship of our Lord and Savior. We call today Good Friday, and that seems rather counterintuitive. Of course, if you're in Christ this evening, you already know where that story is leading. You know what happened on that Friday 2,000 years ago, and you understand that that was undoubtedly good. But perhaps this Friday, today, 2022, for you it's, it's not good. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, chronic pain, wayward children, personal struggles. Perhaps you're having even a hard time focusing on the good this Friday evening. And I want to encourage you as we approach the cross tonight that you're not alone. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. I begin with another psalm or a verse from another psalm. Psalm 139.8 says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave, behold, you are there. We know this scripture to be true, and yet I believe feeling abandoned by God in the midst of our distress is far more common than we would care to admit. We, we feel in the moment that no one cares about us, and since no one else cares, God must not care either. At the same time, we don't like to admit that. It's not freely admitted. Why? Well, James Montgomery Boyce says, it's because we've been taught that Christians are not to experience such things. That we are only to have life more abundantly or to live victoriously. If any of us should admit to such feelings, many of our friends would look askance at us, shake their heads and wonder whether we are even Christians. How good then is it to find in our text for this evening, David expressing those very real feelings? He's not going to sugarcoat his feelings. He's not going to give the Sunday school answer. He pours his heart out on the page, and by the way, he does so while being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the most poignant is the fact that his words will flow freely from the lips of the Messiah as well. And as we will read, we'll understand that David's hurt is personal. Why? Because we read what he writes in the Psalms. The upright will behold his face in Psalm eleven seven, Psalm seventeen fifteen. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. Psalm twenty seven eight. When you said, "Seek my face," my heart said to you, "Your face, O Lord, I shall seek." David's overwhelming desire has been to see God's face, and now in this moment, when we get to Psalm thirteen, it's as if the Lord has forgotten him. At least that's how he feels. And that the Lord is hiding his face from him. The thing that David wants more than anything seems not available. Have you been there? Where you feel as if you're pursuing? You feel as if you're checking your motives in your heart for purity and yet it seems quiet. We feel alone. We know in our heart of hearts that that's impossible. Because we know the promises of God are real. We, we know that, but we would be dishonest if we didn't admit that those feelings don't creep in 
in the more difficult moments. Be that our flesh, be that the enemy, those feelings come in. This is David's prayer, and it should be our prayer as well. But David says, one thing I have asked from the Lord. One thing. If I could sum up what I want in one thing, what I desire, what I need from the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. These are powerful words from a man after God's own heart. How much more powerful are they when they are applied to the perfect son of David, the Christ that we come to celebrate and worship tonight? David yearns for God's presence. Nobody knew that presence better than Jesus. Martin Luther said about this particular psalm, this is a prayer full of the sighings and groanings of an afflicted heart in the hour of darkness. And almost overwhelmed under that darkness with the extreme of grief and sorrow and driven to the greatest strait of mine. This is not a dull ache of grief. The word that's used there, David is describing a turmoil of thought, a violent arrest in the midst of trouble. It's one thing to be abandoned by friends, but it's another traumatic experience entirely to think that one has been abandoned by God. Can anything be worse than that thought? It's really hard to think so. Remember Jonah, when Jonah attempted to escape from God? He thought that being abandoned by God would be a desirable thing. But when you get to chapter 2, you find out, and Jonah finds out, when he was thrown into the sea and swallowed, even before he was swallowed by the great fish, he finally sensed what it was like to be abandoned by God. And he found he didn't like it very much. He compared a state of abandonment to Sheol, the grave, and cried out in distress, asking God to save him. At his deliverance, Jonah would say, But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh, my God. He knew who he was speaking to. And we too know well that in Christ our deliverance is certain. But that doesn't remove the raw emotion of trial and of tribulation. So let's turn to Psalm 13 and read the words of David. And then that will take us to the cross of Christ. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say I have overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. We just break that up into three sections. We can do this fairly quickly. Verses 1 and 2 are David's feelings of abandonment. This is real, raw emotion from David. It's also real relationship. Can I comfort you with something tonight? Asking the Lord why is not blasphemy. It's not disrespectful. I believe that it's a vital part of seeking God's face in our struggles. And I think David proves that here in many other places as well. However, at the same time, let me be clear, we cannot remain there. We, we are not to live in a state 
of questioning. Because if we do that, we presume to know better than the Lord. Which brings us to our proper course of action in verse 3. Consider and answer me. What is this? It's a prayer. It's a prayer of desperation. Note the place of the prayer in this psalm. It occurs in the middle, and it is the turning point. And, and, and we will reference Psalm 22 tonight, and that's a, a very well-known psalm from the crucifixion, and it's very much the same structure. It just does it in 31 verses, and we're doing it here in 6. But we have a prayer right here in the middle. Prayer is always the correct course of action. This is where our desperation must drive us, to pray more and to lean on him more. And that is where our joy is found, continually, perpetually, eternally. And that's what we find in verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. David rejoices in God. However great the pressure, the choice is still David's to make. It's still ours to make. It's not the enemies, it's not the world's. And God's covenant remains, so the choice is clear. I have trusted, Lord, in your loving kindness. I rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to you because you have dealt far more bountifully with me than I ever deserved. The psalmist entrusts himself to that covenant love. And he turns his attention not to the quality of his faith. Aren't you glad that in a given moment, your salvation, your joy, your comfort is not based on the quality of your faith? No, it is based on the object of your faith. Faith in the Lord, the outcome of your faith, salvation in his name, which he has every intention of enjoying. I will live in that reality. When things are dark, I look at the light. When things are hopeless, I look where my hope comes from. Though I fall, he is victorious. Verse 4 speaks of being shaken. David knew that feeling very well. And I would argue that Christ knew that feeling as well. Obviously without sin. But on the cross, Jesus could very well have quoted what we just read in Psalm 13, 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. Jesus knew this prayer and he knew it and felt it without sin and without human compromise. And he also knew the outcome was secure. And that was explained in a different psalm in 16.8 which says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And he was at the right hand of Christ. And, he, and, and if he is indwelling you in his spirit, this same truth is true for you. You will not be shaken. How did Jesus know he wouldn't be shaken? Ah, first-hand experience. Look at what he prayed the night before his crucifixion. John 17 Verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. With what? With the glory which I had with you before the world was. 
That's Jesus' prayer the night before he gives his life. And more accurately, the night he would take on and atone for the sins of his people. That perfect son of David makes it possible for all who come to him in faith to behold the very face of God, to live and dwell in his house forever. But before that was accomplished, the son suffered. That's what we're here to talk about tonight. He suffered as no one else ever has. He suffered as a sinless sacrifice in the place of a sinful and rebellious people. So on this somber Good Friday, let's consider the cross. And we come now to that one incident which is at once the most horrific and the most blessed event in all of human history. The crucifixion of the King of Glory. It is certainly true that the gruesome death of our Lord at the hands of his enemies is not a happy subject. And yet, it is at the same time true that no subject, no incident in all of sacred or human history is so worthy of our consideration. And furthermore, while the scenes of Golgotha are uniformly wretched, those scenes are at the same moment the most important, the most sublime, and the most blessed that a sanctified soul can conceive. We are called in Hebrews 12, 2 and 3, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Tonight we want to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Joy and the cross should not be in the same sentence. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, consider him this evening, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's take some uncomfortable moments and first consider the physical suffering of Christ. And if it was only the physical suffering, that would be an amazing thing. But it's even more than that. But we'll start there. When we consider this idea of crucifixion, it's difficult for us to consider it. Because you and I have never seen a man crucified. We've never had to walk a city street and seeing a man nailed to a tree. And, 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 And we'll probably never have to experience that. But in those days... They understood crucifixion. They understood what the cross meant, what the pain of the cross was, what the humiliation of the cross was. Crucifixion was used as a deterrent to anyone who would dare raise their hand against Rome. So it needed to send a necessary, terrifying message. And by Jesus' day, the Romans had perfected this method of execution. It was excruciating. By the way, that very word defines the practice. It's derived from the Latin excruciatus, meaning out of the cross. There were three requirements for Roman crucifixion. Number one, it had to be public. People needed to see this so they could see what would happen to someone who dared to raise their fist against the empire. Number two, it had to be lingering. 
We, in our, as rare as methods of execution are today, if they do exercise, though, they, they want them to be as quick and as painless as possible. Even a firing squad at least happens very quickly. No, that's not what this was designed to do. It was meant to take hours, if not days, so that the person would suffer greatly. And number three, it had to result in death. And you hear that, and you go, of course it had to result in death. What are you talking about? What I mean is that you could be stoned and survive. Just ask the Apostle Paul. Other methods of execution have been attempted where people have survived. The Roman law was that no man could be taken off the cross until he was expired. If a condemned man survived the cross, and I don't mean he went on to live a long and fruitful life. No, if he breathed any of his last breaths off of that cross, the entire detail assigned to the crucifixion were crucified themselves. These soldiers made sure that these men were dead when they hung on a cross. By the way, that's important to consider when we think about the resurrection. No man came off of a cross. Let's continue. It was customary for the condemned man to carry his own cross. Do you remember what Jesus oftentimes told his apostles they would need to do? They would have to pick up their cross and follow him. He would carry that cross from the flogging post to the site of the crucifixion outside of the city walls, so that is some distance. To add to the humiliation, he was usually naked unless that was prohibited by local customs. And since the weight of the entire cross was probably well over 300 pounds, only the crossbar, the Romans called that the patibulum, was carried, which in and of itself weighed between 75 and 125 pounds. And it gets worse. Usually the outstretched arms were either tied or nailed to the crossbar. The left foot was pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail was driven through the arch of each. In doing that, the victim's full weight would be on the nail, and when he stretched to breathe, searing pain would go through the nerves between the metatarsal bones in his feet. The archaeological remains of a crucified body found in an ossuary near Jerusalem and dating from the time of Christ indicate that the nails were tapered iron spikes, approximately five to seven inches long, with a square shaft three-eighths of an inch across. After both arms and legs were fixed to the crossbar, the patibulum and the victim together were lifted onto the vertical beam. And then the soldiers and the civilian crowd would often taunt and jeer at the condemned man. The soldiers customarily divided up his clothes among themselves. All these details are corroborated in the gospel record. So I want to jump right into the middle of that ugly drama. So turn to Matthew chapter 27. Granted, we jump in in the middle of the story, and I know most of you know it well, many injustices and humiliations have already occurred by the time we get to this point in the text. But we are about halfway through Jesus' time on the cross. It is midday. Verse 45 tells us we are at the sixth hour. The sixth hour is about 12 noon, which makes verse 45 all the more striking. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Noontime, it was dark. 
About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. By the way, that's a reference to Malachi 4, 5. They are totally misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. But that's an important point to understand, that they understand the scriptures, and yet they're missing their Messiah. Immediately, one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Of course, we know Elijah does not come, but that's because the crowd doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly was this the Son of God. God can speak through donkeys. He can speak through Roman soldiers. He even speaks through Caiaphas that this was indeed the Christ. I want to focus on one verse in particular, and that is Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, thama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we read that and we think about it in our own human capacity, maybe it's just me, but I I can't help suppressing the thought. If you're the son of God, should you be saying this? I mean, you knew this was going to happen. You knew this was the plan. You had just prayed the night before that the Lord's will to be done. If you're God, if you're the second person of the Trinity, how can you feel abandoned? How, how can he say this? Well, that's because our temptation is to try to explain this amazing thing. It's, it's for us to try to protect Jesus from saying something that he might regret as if we were to know better. Yet, it's important to understand here that Jesus' cry is a cry learned from Scripture. And it's a cry that only Israel's Messiah can truly say. That it's, it's a cry that only the Christ can say. Let's go to the source, Psalm 22, 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I have no rest. This could easily be followed by, how long, O Lord? Psalm 22 is much longer than Psalm 13, but it follows a similar pattern. Verses 1 through 18 present a dire set of circumstances, just as verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 13 do. So dire that David despairs of his life. In verses 19 through 21, he appeals to God in prayer to deliver him, just as David did in verses 3 and 4. In verses 22 to 31, he extols the mighty acts of God, and the psalm ends in victory. What kind of victory? The victory where the entire earth turns to worship the Messiah. The parallels to what occurred at Golgotha in Psalm 22 are striking as well. A cry of abandonment, despising and mocking by the onlookers. The specific taunt to deliver himself by the chief priest. His bones being out of joint. 
being surrounded by the wicked, having his hands and feet pierced, his garments being divided by lot. When Jesus quotes from this psalm while hanging on the cross, I don't believe he was speaking off the cuff. I don't believe he was robotically quoting scripture. I believe he was quoting the very words of God to describe what he really felt in those excruciating moments. By the way, Jesus also knows how Psalm 22 ends, in the glory of the Lord. How does he know? Uh, He was there when it was written. He was the true son of David, living out David's inspired words in the most perfect way. One commentator said this, These words mark the climax of the suffering of Christ for a lost world. Here he drank to the dregs the cup of sorrow, grief, and pain on our behalf. Do you remember when he had the conversation with James and John? Can you, can you drink this cup? No, only Christ can drink this cup. In these hours when the sun refused to shine upon suffering deity, Jesus found fitting expression to his feeling of desolation in the words of the psalmist. Jesus had to pay the price alone and tasted death, spiritual death. Spiritual death is broken communion. Jesus had a taste of such a broken communion, the first and last he ever experienced in those desolate hours when darkness lay upon the earth and upon his soul. And I want you to understand, as bad as all that stuff is about the crucifixion, crucifixion is not what prompted Jesus to pray, let this cup pass from me. Crucifixion was not what made Jesus sweat drops of blood the night before in the garden. And it was not what made Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then why does he say it? Well, because for the first and only time, having taken on the sin of the world, the Son felt abandoned by the Father. Make no mistake, the Father went nowhere. But Jesus had taken on the sin of the world. Christ felt in reality what David thought he felt in his tribulation. And and we understand the intensity of abandonment. Can you remember a time when you were young and maybe you were somewhere with your family and you realized that your family wasn't there anymore? That's a a memorable thing for a young person. We think we know what abandonment means, and it's traumatic, it's frightening. But we have no inclination of the pain that Jesus felt in those moments. And we know that Christ was perfect, but we need to know that his suffering was perfect as well and complete G. Campbell Morgan in The Crisis of Christ. I know that's small, but let me read it to you because I think it's powerful. He says, The logical, irresistible, irrevocable issue of sin is to be God-forsaken. Sin in its genesis was rebellion against God. Sin in its harvest is to be God-abandoned. Man sinned when he dethroned God and enthroned himself. He, perhaps we would say we, reap the utter harvest of our sin when we have lost God altogether. That's the issue of all sin. Now listen solemnly, and from that cross, hear the cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Morgan says that is hell. No other human being has ever been God forsaken in this life. In this life. Do you hear what he's saying there? No human being has been God-forsaken in this life. Man, by his own act, alienated himself from God, but God never left him. 
What explanation can there be of this cry from the lips of Jesus? None other is needed than that declared by his herald three years before. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He has taken hold upon sin. He has made it his own. On that cross he was made sin. And therein he passed to the uttermost limits of sin's outworking. He was in that moment God forsaken. He knew no sin. He was made sin. He was forsaken of God. And 700 years before his birth, Isaiah the prophet wrote these words. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Notice what, where, the, where the ownership lies. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. It's unthinkable. It's unimaginable. And yet it was accomplished in the perfect will of God. He goes on in verse 10 to say, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. That's you and I, folks. He will prolong his days. That's eternity. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And if you are in his hand, he cannot lose you. God's wrath was revealed at the cross, revealing not only God's righteousness and holy justice against sin, but in his great love for his people. How so? In that he delivered up his only begotten son, so that his only son would taste his wrath and the death that results from sin. Christ received the wrath of God that had been stored up in divine anger against every sin that had ever been committed by his people in cosmic rebellion against him. God delivered up his son to taste the torments and afflictions of divine judgment on our behalf, on your behalf, on my behalf. What love, what righteousness, what justice. What wrath, what love that the Father bestowed upon us that we should be children of God. In addition to the terrible pain of crucifixion, Jesus took upon himself the absolute, deliberate, unmitigated wrath of God. He was as close as he could possibly be to our sins without ever being tainted by our sins. He became sin for us as our representative, our substitute. And this cup that Jesus drank on our behalf, the wrath of God and the death that comes from sin, what's the result? Christ now invites his people to partake in a different cup. We'll partake of that tonight symbolically. The cup of life. The life of his blood shed for the remission of sins. This is the true righteousness and holiness and justice of God revealed in his wrath. God's patience from the time Adam fell in his long suffering, in the holding back his wrath upon a sinful people, he now displayed upon his most righteous and holy son, whom he loved. And what did Christ accomplish? Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. For what reason? 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree or the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. So look upon the Christ who was lifted up on the cross, who promised to draw all men to himself, who experienced God's wrath, and believe. Believe. Remind yourself this evening to believe. Maybe you're here as a family member and a guest, and you've never heard this truth before. Can I exhort you tonight to believe? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Young, old, everyone in between. Believe on the only begotten Son of God who has tasted death and hell on your behalf if you come to him in faith. And don't ever look to your own righteousness again. And how did he accomplish such a feat? How do we know that this sacrifice is sufficient? How do we know that Christ's death atoned for our sin? Well, you've got to come back Sunday for that. That's what we'll celebrate on that glorious day. But it's our reason for being, our reason for gathering, our reason for worshiping. How long, O Lord? In Jesus' case, the answer came pretty quickly, just three days. For on Sunday, victory in Jesus is a reality for the Son of God. And more amazingly, it's a reality for all those who believe. Tonight, we bow at the cross. Spurgeon said, No scene in sacred history ever gladdens the soul like the scene on Calvary. Nowhere does the soul find such consolation as on that very spot where misery reigned, where woe triumphed, where agony reached its climax. Ah, but why is this Friday good? Because Sunday... We rejoice at the empty tomb because Sunday Jesus is alive and we celebrate the glorious resurrection of the one who conquered death, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at your sovereign grace. We marvel at your perfect will. We marvel at at your wrath being poured out on your spotless Son. On our behalf, on those that rebelled, Lord, we are all sheep gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. And yet, you are the God of our salvation. And our faith is grounded at the cross of Jesus Christ, Lord. And it is vindicated at the empty tomb, at the risen Savior. Lord, may this weekend not go by with us not being just immersed in that glorious truth. Lord, for for a time, help us to overcome doubts, struggles, pain, difficulty, and let us see that that just pales in comparison to the sacrifice of your Son, to the glorious gospel that was preached at Calvary through the acts and obedience and perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, bless the rest of our time. Lord, I pray you would convict us of sin. I pray you would prepare our hearts and minds for more worship, for our time at your table. 
that you would be glorified, that you alone would get the glory. And we give you praise this evening in Jesus' name. Amen.